How do you squeeze a college from a citrus grove? On this episode of Outspoken, Cal State Fullerton faculty and staff give us a collective campus oral history. Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History, highlights people and ideas in the fields of oral and public history, along with current events of community interest. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra, professor of history and associate director of the center. Back in 1957, California's Master Plan for Higher Education reorganized college and university systems in the state. And California State University Fullerton, first known as Orange County State College, was born. Longtime Orange County residents wistfully recall the scent of citrus in the air, but by the 1950s, the groves were already disappearing in the fastest growing county in the entire United States. Cold War defense contracts, a booming private sector, and the climate of one's dreams added up to a rapidly growing population with the full weight of the baby boom generation about to hit. It was no accident that Disneyland opened here in 1955. In the mid-50s, there were about 2.7 million college students in the U.S. Ten years later, there were more than 7 million, more than the number of farmers, of miners, or of steelworkers. The college started out in temporary buildings scattered around Fullerton, offering its first classes in 1959 at Sunny Hills High School, with faculty and administrators crammed into a condemned building at Fullerton High. From such humble beginnings, a vast institution began. As the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, we thought it would be a good time to hear from some of the people who got the university started and later helped it on its way. Their voices, captured for posterity in the center's archives and selected by archivist Natalie Navarre, give us a sense of what it was like to be part of this adventure. There is no way to tell the story of CSU Fullerton without the man whose name now graces the Center for Oral and Public History, Lawrence DeGraff, founding faculty member, the institutional historian, and the man who has seen it all since 1959. DeGraff's book, The Fullerton Way, published for the university's 50th anniversary 10 years ago, is essential reading for anyone interested in not only Cal State Fullerton's history, but as a case study of the growth of state higher education in the post-war United States. Back in the 50s and 60s, those baby boomer students were coming in large numbers. But given the chance to look back on his career in 2017, it was clear that not even so close an observer and participant as Larry DeGraff could have seen what was to come. What are you most proud of in your career at Cal State Fullerton? I guess uh, maybe the fact that Cal State Fullerton has grown as much as well as it has. Uh, First of all, that's not necessarily been true of all of the other state colleges, state universities. And secondly, there were times I said when we weren't sure just how respectable or how large. The 40,000, for instance, there were many times when we saw 25,000 is going to be our cap. And it wasn't until Milton Gordon came along we really had a huge surge up now. Whether all of us has been for the better is a good question, but uh, um, that's, that's been something to watch with awe, I would say. Long before Milton Gordon became president in 1990, faculty and administration had to build a college from scratch. As with most things on campus in those early years, departments and curricula did not arrive fully formed. 
The history department, for example, was pieced together through the early to mid-1960s. I know you eventually developed a history department. Mm -hmm. and, uh, well, give partial uh, primary credit, I guess, to Giles Brown. Giles Brown was hired the second year, 1960, uh, stolen from Orange Coast College, uh, and where he had been the dean, I think, of social sciences, and uh, became sort of a combination of the dean of what would become social sciences and the chair of what would become a history department. And then Charles Pavlovich was hired from Pomona. Uh, he was our European and ancient historian. Uh, Jaws, like me, was an American historian. And the three of us essentially began to put together the history department. Warren Beck came the year after that and had quite a bit to do with organizing as well as eventually becoming the chair of history. But what were those early days like? You can't have a college without a library. And at Orange County State College, as it was known in those years, Ernie Toy had the task of creating one, as he recalls in this 1998 interview. The community. Just the, the community was very excited about this institution and supported it very strongly. We were very happy to see it. And uh, all, ever since it started, the communities were strongly supported, which is very nice. Sometimes you Absolutely. get conflict between town and town, but right. that was never the case. And, very nice that way. Uh, the textbooks from uh, the off-campus center at Santa Ana, which we brought up in a pickup truck. And, uh, who brought it away. up in a pickup truck? Well, I did, and several really? others who helped, and some volunteers helped. And so it's kind of a community. You were very close, tight-knit. Yeah, we weren't very many people. Thousands of people, faculty, staff, administration, keep Cal State Fullerton going today. There were considerably fewer back when Ernie Toy started the library. It was pretty much the Ernie Toy show. Yeah. Did you choose not to have your office or it just... I had to be on scene. Okay. Somebody had to be out there. And for a while I was the only person to keep the library open. And there really needed to be somebody there all the time because you couldn't just leave classrooms open and all that. And the faculty came and went, the students came and went, and the business manager couldn't afford to have his assistant out there because he was busy doing other things. And so the library was a natural, it had to be there yeah. to be of any use to anybody. That's true. So you have to staff it, so you what got somebody your, there. What were your hours? Well, when we started, I'm trying to think now, we opened at 8, I think, when we started, and closed at 5, but that wasn't satisfactory. And as soon as we could get enough money to hire student assistants and, and some part-time people, we opened until 10 at night because a number of our classes were at night. After all, with commuter students and yeah. students working, you have to have night classes. So we tried to stay open all of the hours of instruction as early as we could. We still had many night classes, and we're still a commuter school. Toy was also a key ally of the history department, as Larry DeGroff recalls. What do you remember about the early years of the oral history program and as it developed? All right, first of all, it, and this is a credit that's almost never given, it was a dual program of the history department and the library. And Ernie Toy, our founding librarian, was himself a historian, uh, almost I got a PhD in history, um, at one of the UCs, I forget which one, uh, and was very interested uh, in, pro in promoting things historical. So he 
gave space in the library for the oral history program. We didn't have any from the history department. Uh, and um, several of his staff uh, were prominent interviewers of people at Orange County State College. So in that sense, it was a dual program. The oral history program, the forerunner of the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History, was just one element in a dynamic young history program. Leland Balot, interviewed in 1994, recalls what it was like to teach history in the 1960s at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, essentially, you had a great deal of freedom in how you approached your teaching. Uh, first of all, you had to have versatility because Cal State Fullerton, when I arrived, was about 6,000 students. And in the first semester I was here, I taught uh, modern Britain, which is the course that I still teach. I taught uh, world's, uh, Western civilization. And I taught US survey to the Civil War. And Warren Beck was kind of the role model that, you know, you better be prepared to teach anything because that's the way you keep your job. <laughs> Was it a straight so, history department when you came, or was it still social it science? It was still social science. It was a division of social science, but it, I think it was a year later that it broke into political science and, and uh, history. And so we were pretty much, uh, you know, independent department uh, within no time of my, my arrival here. But in other words, first of all, you had to be able to teach many things. Within no time, I was teaching um, uh, historiography. Uh, I was teaching a, uh, what amounted to a, an undergraduate seminar on uh, comparative slavery, and, and you just, you know, you had to be able to teach many things. As we grew, we were able to get more specialized. Oh, I was teaching not only, that's right, in my first year, I was teaching all British history. I taught the uh, 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 early British history. Peter Stewart, well. too? Well, before that, wow. British history from the beginning, and then I picked up British history. U.S. history, Western Civ, and just all of these things. I teach undergraduate uh, historiography, and I taught graduate historiography, the original 399. And so that wasn't in my first year, but within the time after I finished my dissertation, began doing that. Before long, the department gained a strong reputation for its research output, with Gordon Bakken, who arrived in 1969, an important proponent. Here he is in a 1999 interview. The other thing that uh, I think was notable about the department is that it all arrived either, uh, you know, in bulk either in 1965 or 1969. So that the department uh, has, over the last 30 years, uh, pretty much grown up together. And uh, I think what was remarkable about the department in the first 10 years that I was here was the fact that the level of publication and scholarship as a department. Uh, was virtually unmatched by any university in Southern California, with the exception of UCLA. Uh, we, in fact, kind of kept tabs on that. We would uh, um, take a look at what, uh, we'll say, the elite institutions were able to produce and what we, of course, as the mere uh, uh, normal school peons were able to produce. And of course, we did far better than they, and uh, uh, for less money and teaching far more courses and more students. So uh, we always wanted to make sure that you know, upstart places like Irvine at least understood that they may be able to hire people that have done 10 or 11 books, but they certainly didn't produce them in situ. 
The history department clearly valued great teaching as well as scholarship. Lee Ballot describes how faculty thought of these two branches of their work. Secondly, teaching, you were essentially told that teaching was the most important thing that you did, that you read the, the master plan for higher education, and that we were essentially, our mission was, was instruction, classroom instruction. Uh, and research actually was never emphasized, but you knew that you had to finish your, your, your uh, PhD in order to, to get tenure. Uh, it's only later on that it became very apparent that for promotion, that research carried a whole lot more weight than, than, than uh, you might have originally expected. Uh, but the point is, in the very beginning, there was no necessary dichotomy between teaching and research. There were some people, I think, who thought that research was not going to be important at all. But there was no dichotomy. The assumption was, was that in order to be a good classroom teacher, you had to be aware of what was going on in your field, in the content, historiography, and such. And that the way you demonstrated and the way you did that was by continuing your research. The changes in American society in the 1960s and 1970s, the civil rights movement and second wave feminism, changed colleges and universities across the land. Students demanded a rethinking of curricula to reflect a more diverse range of academic interests and subjects. Efforts to develop new programs became the joy and burden of faculty members who believed such programs could fill a great need. In this 1973 interview, we can feel the sense of urgency as Sandra Sutphin discusses plans for a women's studies program at Cal State Fullerton. Fullerton still does not offer very many courses in women as a specialized subgroup. Uh, I'm participating now in a, in a committee of women who believe firmly in activism, a, a meeting that uh, a group of women who were called together by Dean Hazel Jones, uh, the uh, Dean of uh, Letters, Arts, and Sciences at Fullerton. We've been meeting for, oh, well, very close to six months, I would think, at this point, every other week or so, uh, discussing what we can do to form an active women's group. And one of the offshoots of this project has will be the establishment of a academic women's group at Fullerton, including both staff and faculty, and um, an attempt to start coordinating the courses which are offered into, if not a true women's studies package, then at least some kind of coordinated offering of courses which deal with women. There are a few courses which exist. There's a course in the Interdisciplinary Center which, which stresses women in uh, changing society. Uh, there's a course in um, the English department about women in literature. There's a course, I think, in anthropology that deals with women. And there's my course in women in politics. Sutphin and her colleagues achieved their dream in 1983. It wasn't only in the classroom that changes were underway, though. Jewel Plummer Cobb, a distinguished biologist and administrator, became the first woman and the first person of color to become president of the university, serving from 1981 to 1990. Interviewed by Larry DeGraff in 1990, she reflects on the significance of new programs. Now, another thing which was well established was had its enrollment difficulties during your 
President, too, from the two ethnic studies uh, They program. now have good, strong enrollment because they were brought in under the allowed requirements for uh, credit under general education. So when I came, apparently they were not, which no. I, I found ridiculous. And in fact, our general education package was sent back from the chancellor's office because it did not have adequate attention to that category. Yeah, I know we've had some ups and downs on general education during the mm -hmm. presidency. That was one of the issues. Yes, it was. Mm. Okay. But uh, I think there are other problems also. Um, uh, the enrollment in the upper ethnic, I believe, at one time was such I had only a single digit number of majors. Uh, do you have any? They still don't have the one major, mm -hmm. as does linguistics. Yeah. Now, did you, were you under any pressure at any time to terminate those no. programs? No, I, uh, no, I don't, uh, nobody's mentioned those to me. What, on both of these? Actually, they use, they're used very effectively. Sometimes people have double, double majors. Sometimes, yes. But mm -hmm. uh, they're used very effectively for enrichment and enlightenment of students, black and white. Do you feel that both women's studies and ethnic studies have a permanent place in higher education? Yes, I do. Mm. And uh, it's ironic that we don't have more in women's studies since we're 55% women on this campus. But you don't feel that uh, the answer lies more in integrating uh, the... Uh, I think both should happen. Mm. It's a debate we've have in, had in history over the years, and economics over the years, mm. and American studies over the years. And the university was changing in other ways, reflecting national trends. Paul Miller, interviewed in 1999, was a pioneer on the Fullerton campus in the 1970s and 1980s, establishing new student support services to serve a rapidly growing and diverse student body. The program at Fullerton had gotten started about six months before I arrived with a grant that a disabled veteran, a Vietnam veteran, had received from the VA to begin exploring and getting a group of students together that might benefit from support services. And so by the time I came in um, September of 74, um, they had already been able to put together a $3,000 budget for, the, for this program, three grants. And that was salaries, uh, that was operating expense, it was everything for that, for that first year I was here, $3,000. I got two fifty dollars an hour for a 20-hour-a-week position, although I was working 30 to 40 hours a week. Um, and But I was able to do that because I had planned for a year to do some exploration of careers, etc. was able to live with my parents um, here in, in uh, the area. So it worked out that I could do that, and it was, an, it was a chance for me to get, an, to get experience in a brand new area of student affairs that I hadn't even studied in graduate school because it was also brand new in uh, higher ed. By 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act changed the civil rights landscape for people with disabilities nationally. But Miller and his colleagues were already working to provide equal access. And then, 76, 77, yeah, the state decided with a budget change proposal, um, they decided to uh, fund these programs because they recognized there was a need for support services for a growing population of students with disabilities. We had, at the time I arrived here in 74, they had identified about 
40 to 50 students with disabilities. Um, and then from 76 uh, to the present, um, I mean, it, things have just grown to the point where we've got all kinds of new regulations, new laws. Um, everything is so different now than it was then, and I would have never been able to predict uh, back in 74 where we would be in 1999 in terms of all the changes that have occurred in society and all of the, the emphasis on access and on equality and, and fair treatment and equal opportunity and uh, reasonable accommodations and all the things that are really a hallmark of, of American society today when it comes to um, the whole issue of diversity and people who are different, who are a little bit outside of what we would consider to be the norm. Um, and people with disabilities are a large minority. I mean, there are 54 million Americans with disabilities. And the majority of them are not obvious. They're not, they're not wheelchairs. They're not uh, canes or guide dogs. They're more invisible kinds of, of limitations. But a significant number of our, of our uh, neighbors in this country have disabilities. And almost every family is touched by uh, an experience with disability in a family. Now, Cal State Fullerton serves more than 40,000 students each year but it still retains much of the spirit of its founders who came together to carve an institution of higher learning out of the citrus groves of Orange County. Gordon Bakken's and Ernie Toy's memories show the sense of collegiality that kept people going over the decades. And the one thing that's also, I think, critical about this department, which is very different from other academic departments, is the colleagues are co true colleagues. They get along, regardless of difference. That in fact, uh, when we'd go to department meetings, we could argue like the Dickens behind closed doors, but emerge as colleagues. Um, that was something that characterized Fullerton. It characterized the history department. Um, so in terms of having a departmental home to go to, it was excellent. For me, in terms of my scholarship, I was living in the best of all possible worlds. I mean, I, it, I cannot think of another place in the United States which would be uh, of, of equal value. I came to the department with, with prominent Western historians, uh, Warren Beck, um, Jackson K. Putnam, Larry DeGraff, all expert in Western topics, all people who could, uh, I could share my work with. Looking back, how would you summarize your experiences at Cal State Fullerton? Well, as I've said, they were very positive. It was, it was a great place to work, and the people were wonderful. And I'm happy to have been able to meet a lot of students since I retired, which I wasn't in a position to do before that, except those who had transgressed the rules very seriously and <laughs> had problems. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's been a, a very positive experience. And it did one peculiar thing. I, I came out of World War II in Korea thinking that the Navy was a terribly inefficient organization. And then I saw the state of California at close range, and I am very respectful of the efficiency of the Navy. It's wonderful compared to the state of California as I saw it. That spirit, the Fullerton Way, continues today. Larry DeGroff not only documented Cal State Fullerton's history, he made it. And he added an entirely new chapter when, through his generosity, he lent his name to the Center for Orland Public History. 
In this 50th anniversary year of the center, its archive now houses more than 6,000 oral histories, a fair number of them conducted by Larry DeGroff himself. What's your hope for the Center for Oral and Public History as it moves forward? Well, first of all, that it continues to um, attract students, attract faculty, be, and well, that's the first thing I have, that, uh, because there are times when we wondered if the whole thing would last. The other is that it develops a sense of public service. Where in the public can our services be used? That's Lawrence DeGraff. That's what the Center for Oral and Public History is all about, and that's why his name is on it. We're aiming for at least 50 more good years. That's all for this episode of Outspoken. For archivist Natalie Navarre and producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothrep. Until next time.